All right, this morning we've got the Jesus series, and uh, as you know, we've been following this process, and it's uh, Alexander Fenter's process largely, probably 80% of it. And as you can see, we're on the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus. So the penultimate one in the, current, the context of this current series, although I'm pretty sure that what we're going to do is there are guys who are going to be preaching over April and early May that will follow on from this. But in terms of this process, what will happen is, is stuff will come out of that and then potentially we are looking, and we haven't decided fully yet, to do a series on spiritual warfare over our winter months. And so we're going to shunda by shandai, and we're going to cast demons out of Glenn, I mean, sorry, uh, out of people, and uh, I'm just teasing. He looked at me when I said that. So, um, and, uh, and then we, 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 but we want to understand that the Bible says, do not be ignorant of the enemy's schemes. What does that look like? We've got Hasatan, the one who is the deceiver, the one who is the Lord of the flies, the one who lies and deceives us. And we've spoken about Jesus, but we've got an arch enemy who needs to be understood so that we know what his schemes are so we can navigate life. Anyway, that's for the future. The point is, this is the penultimate uh, one in the, in the context of the series. And Jesus grew in this consciousness and this decision-making. Richard prayed this morning that we would make good decisions. When we make good decisions one after the other, we played 10 pin bowling last night. And as you know, with 10 pin bowling, if you keep getting strikes or you keep getting spares, your, your score kind of exponentially increases. No good getting a strike over here and then three frames later getting a strike. You need to actually put the strikes together so that what you can do is get the exponential score. And if you know how scoring works, in, in, and let me help you, in temp and bowling is if you get a strike, well, that ball, then the next two balls count for that particular ball. So if you get a strike now, and then you get another strike, another strike, you land up with 30 points in your first frame. If you get a spare... Your next ball uh, counts for that particular frame too. And the point that I'm trying to make is when we make good decisions one after the other, we start to exponentially move into the plans and purposes that God has for us. And Jesus understood this. He understood what God had for him. He understood, according to Isaiah and Daniel, he was prophesied in those books of being the son of man, the one who would be the suffering servant, who would come and save Israel, bring her back into relationship with God, and then Israel would go out and bring the nations in and the whole world would be saved or be brought to a place of salvation. And he purposefully planned his life and prepared for that to happen. How many of us are doing that? We had a doing spirituality with Alexander Fenter recently. And it was brilliant to see the turnout because I saw people going, actually, I want to I wanna put my hand up for my own spiritual formation. I was a... a facilitates on seven habits highly effective people. And, and it's a brilliant course because it gets you to think about being proactive, putting first things first, about starting with the end in mind, about how we interrelate with one another, how we sharpen the saw and make sure that we don't just fall over and burn out. All of those kind of things are great principles that Stephen Covey has, has implemented. And we put these great plans together for our lives and these mission statements and these goals and values. And we, we place that around our roles as moms and dads and as friends and as it's sons and daughters and all those kind of things. But very few of us have a plan, a spiritual plan for our lives. What are we doing about that? Well, Jesus understood that. He understood and he prepared for that to happen. Even in the context when he read Isaiah and he read Daniel, he realized that he was going to suffer and die for the sake of Israel. So let's have a look at some of the dynamics that this happened. So here are Jesus' prim primary influences. 
Number one was his relationship with his father. We've, we've gone through this throughout the series. If you haven't listened to this or you're new or you're a visitor, go and listen to the series because obviously we build on each one of these moments. But we're kind of reiterating here this relationship with his father. He would have studied the Hebrew Bible. He would have known it off by heart. It was called the Tanakh, which was the writings of Moses, the prophets, and the wisdom writings. And he would have understood how to process this, the writings of David, the Psalms. And uh, he would have seen in Isaiah and Daniel that actually spoke about him. And he came to understand with his relationship with his father, with the reading of the Bible. And as the context of Israel, living in this context, 613 laws, oral laws or traditions, the culture, the oppressions of the Romans, he would have had that whole culture that would have impacted him on how he believed and how he walked out his life. But the primary text that he drew, drew from, which we see in his life, are the Psalms, Isaiah and Daniel. And he understood that I needed to make these good decisions to move into the purposes that God has planned for me and each step of the way. Some of them were really difficult. What are we doing in our lives? Are we making good decisions? Because unfortunately, one bad decision can actually shipwreck your life. But when you make good decisions, you incrementally and then exponentially start to move into all of God has for you. I think so many Christians don't make those good decisions, especially around their spiritual formation, because it's difficult. A couple of weeks ago, just with the busyness of my life, I've gone, you know what, God, I'm getting up earlier. I'm tired of work and everything else just kind of coming upon me. Louise calls it an ungodly hour. Rich knows it's not ungodly. That's where God actually is. But we get up and I do my CBR and I read the text and I allow it just to flow over me. Then I share it on the group that we've got and just see what the feedback is and, and, and discuss it. And you can hear that if you're not part of a CBR, community-based reading process, please get involved. It's quite easy. We can send you. You don't even have to get the journal. We can send you. There's an app that you can download for free and get involved in reading the Bible together. It's amazing. And people come up with stuff and you go, wow, that's amazing. And you start to walk it out on a day-to-day basis. So anyway, the point is, is that in the Isaiah text, you can see it says he was a despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Oh, we don't like those words. That S word, that P word. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. This is the prophetic declaration of Isaiah before Jesus was even a sparkle in his dad's eye, which is not true. It was obviously before the creation of time. And then Daniel, we see the Son of Man, the Anointed One. We see in Daniel 7, we see, I saw someone like the Son of Man, and he was given all this authority and glory and sovereign power. But then we see in in Daniel 9, it talks about the fact that he will put to end sin and atone for the wickedness to bring in everlasting righteousness. But it then says the Anointed One will be put to death. So Jesus understood, hold on a second, this is me that Isaiah is talking about. This is me that Daniel is talking about. And actually, I've got to go to the cross. I've got to go and die for the sake of Israel to bring righteousness back into play so that man and God can be reconciled once more. The problem was at the time, it was the exact opposite understanding, like we've said. (laughs) No, no, the Messiah is going to be the socio-political military king who's going to come in, deal with the Romans and set us free and bring us into our freedom. That's how he's going to do it. And they got it so wrong. And so that's why many of them missed it. And so let me, let me change lanes for a second. The disciple John, 
Five times in the book of John, he's referred to, and he wrote the book, as the disciple that Jesus loved. I mean, Moses said he was the most humble man that ever lived in his own writings. But here's a man who's probably about 19 years old when he meets Jesus, where he's fishing, and Jesus says, come follow me, and he puts a nest down and he follows. But there was a natural chemistry between John and Jesus. Something connected there that he was the one of the 12. Jesus connected more specifically with John, more specifically with Peter, James, and John, and then to the 12, and then to the 72, and then to the crowds. And in many ways, God has called us to live out our relationships like that. But there was the special intimacy that he had. In fact, Jesus even entrusted his own mother to John when he was on the cross. Remember? Mother, he has your son. Son, he has your mother. So there was a connection that just happened naturally. Now, let me stop for a moment because we move away from Jesus. How many of us have a relationship like that with people around us? So I'm going to look at two things. On, On one level, God has called us into relationships to have that kind of intimacy with one other person. And I'm not talking husband and wife right now. I'm talking a mate, a girlfriend, someone you're able to just process with. And no matter what you say, they don't go, oh, my word, did she just say that? But, but people, that, that, that can, you can go and say, you know what, I, this is what I'm feeling. I know it's not necessarily true. Now, when I planted this church, asked Louise, I was looking for some kind of means. I'd never done this before. God said plant a church out of the blue. So we plant the church, and then I go, okay, well, how do we do this? I don't know. Um, well, church kind of does this. You're supposed to have somebody singing up front and then somebody preaching. And then as long as you've got sound and a roof over your head and a place to rent, and let's just keep going. Then you realize, no, you need people alongside you to go, Gary, what are you doing? Why are you preaching on that? No, that's, that's not right. Where are you, where are you learning that? Who, who are you listening to? Who are your influences? So I went out and I started to engage different guys around the city, around the, the country, even beyond. And, and there were guys who, who want you part of their little thing, so they try and recruit you. And I want to be recruited. I, I want to come alongside somebody who's, who's a mentor, who's somebody who can listen to me, a mate who can kind of walk with me along these rides, who knows what I'm going through. Not somebody in the congregation. That didn't work because I ended up trying that. And then God provides an Alexander Fenter out of the blue. God provides a Paul Tottle out of the blue. And I've got two. And this week, on the phone to Paul Tottle, thank goodness for WhatsApp, otherwise the, the telephone bill for the church would be crazy. WhatsApp call, Paul, I'm struggling with this, I'm working with this. Alexander, I'm facing this. Both men, I called this week asking for advice and perspective around stuff. And the godly advice that comes is amazing. Okay, let me change, because I was about to do this. No, no, don't do that. That's not helpful. This is what I've experienced as I've led churches, as I've engaged people. No, this is the way you need to go. Okay, yeah, she's almost, I almost jumped off the cliff there. But you see what happens here. We've had people in the church that have come to Louise and I and gone, I need to spend more time with you. Well, you've been here six months. You will spend more time with us later. But right now, we even said this, and somebody said, why did you say it? No, actually, our leadership and friendship base is full right now. No, but we want you, and unless we get you, we're not going to stick around in the community. Well, clearly, they're not here anymore. In your own circles, you've got to watch that people are trying to get in to have relationship with you without the responsibility and the cost of what relationship takes. 
John just didn't walk into that place with Jesus. No, he followed Jesus. He did all of those things. He was alongside Jesus in all of those moments where Jesus was almost stoned, where all of those kind of moments. He was at the cross. He was the only disciple at the cross. He earned that place. Now, hear, hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, because what I'm going to be saying this morning is there's two, there's two processes, and I'm going to give an example. The Bible says, wives submit to your husbands, husband love your wives. Do you notice what it says? Wives, I'm addressing you wives. I don't go to Louise and say, God says you need to submit to me. Number one, I get a smack, but number two, that's, that's God's injunction to her. But when God says to me, Gary, are you loving your wife? Louise can't go and say, you're not loving me. No, God's speaking to me about how I need to love Louise. And yes, in that process, but you hear what I'm trying to say, is when we talk about these things on one level, you've got a choice about who you connect with. But on another level, God's going to send you people to connect with. You can't go and deal with those kind of things where God's speaking to you about what you have to do versus what others have to do. And we have to separate that because as soon as I step over the line and I say, Louise, submit, I violated what's going to happen. And actually, I'm breaking relationship, not causing. Not coming in and going, I need to spend more time with you. Unless, you, unless I'm spending more time with you and I get your heart, I'm not staying in this church. Well, there's the door. It's going to take time to spend time with us, to move into a place, to serve one another, to see that our hearts are here, that actually we've got agape love, unconditional love for each other, not this prid quo quo, well, if you, then I will. Now it's quiet. But on the night Jesus was betrayed, guess where John was? Lying on Jesus' chest, listening to the heartbeat of the Son of Man. Are we listening to the heartbeat of the Son of Man? Are we hearing what God wants us to do? Because Jesus did that with his own father early in the morning. Let me go and put my head against the proverbial chest of my father and hear his heartbeat. Because what is success? Doing God's will, his way, and his timing. So John uses the word love in the gospel 57 times. The interesting thing is, only 12 of those does he use the word phileo, which is the brotherly affection. Like, hey, I love Rich. I love Glenn. I love Kieran. Brotherly, hey, let's go for it. I mean, look at the way the sharks smashed the lions over the weekend. But we're still brothers. Barely, yeah. We lost to the bulls, so give us a break. But the thing is, 13 times love was only mentioned in the first 12 chapters, and then 45 times in the next nine chapters. And Chapter 13 is the start of the passion. So John says in John 13, but just before the Passover, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the very end. But here's what he actually says in his other book, 1 John 3.16. Interesting, the, the text. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for one another. Interesting. So we spoke about love and law last week, but what does love look like? I, I, I said to you guys, you know, when people come to me and go, you know, uh, Gary, I really love you, but you don't do this, you don't do that, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, therefore I'm going. Husbands and wives do the same thing. Babe, I really love you, but I, I, I'm actually, I'm tired of the fact that you don't clean up after yourself and put the toilet roll on properly. <laughs> And so I'm divorcing you. That's not love. 
And, and I really challenged us to say, love looks like something. Love looks like putting the toilet roll on properly that you get the water for, not behind the back where you're trying to get the other side. I'm teasing. But you hear the, the incongruency when people come and say, I love you, but I'm not going to be around you, and so I'm leaving my sphere of influence because I've realized I can't manipulate you anymore, and so I love you, but I'm divorcing you. And that's what happens in the context of our relationships. See, love's not an emotion. See, we see on Hollywood, oh, I love you. I mean, you, you've got like the, the newly, newly loves here in the church. But we all know, just like Louise and I were almost 25 years ago, but actually 30 years ago when we started to date, and it's all like, woo, it's so nice, and you go out, and you hold hands, and you kissy-kissy, and you huggy-huggy, and, and then you realize, hold on a second, this person's a little bit broken, and they're not doing what I want to do, and what I would like them to be doing. And what Hollywood does is go, Oh, I love you, but I'm divorcing you because I found somebody else who's actually doing what I want them to do. That's, that's the definition of love. As long as you're doing what I want you to do, we're good. And you can stick around and we can do this thing. But boy, when I see the horror of this other broken person that I've now married, and she sees the horror of the broken person she's married, we don't go, oh, let's pull the ripcord and get out of this thing. No, because family works it out. We don't walk out. And Christians should be the people that do that. And I'm going to touch on that in a, in, a, in, a, in a deeper way later on. Love is actually this deep decision. This deep decision that actually in my weakness and my brokenness, that how do I give myself selflessly to Louise and serve her? In the context of marriage, and I did one two weeks ago, I often get the couples to look at each other in front of the, the people who are witnessing the wedding. And I say, guess what you're looking at right now? You're looking at the biggest problem in your marriage. Why? Because we're selfish. I want what I want, and I want it now. But actually, when we understand the selfish, selfless love is I look to serve the other person, and actually, I'm not getting into the marriage for my sake. I'm getting into the marriage for Louisa's sake because I want to serve her and love her that actually the way I've received her from the Father, I give her back to the Father at the end of this age in a better condition because I've loved her, that she's able to grow in all of what God had destined and purpose for her. Not go, oh, you're not doing this for me. You're not giving me this, so I'm going to walk out. And the crazy thing about love is that when we are in our weakest state, we're actually in a place where God can use us as instruments. So I don't come in a prideful guy and say, hey, Louise, God's given me to you. Because I'm here to sort you out. I'll sort you out. Clearly, she sorted me out if you'd known me 25 years ago. But the point is, is that's not what marriage is about. Actually, when I'm weak and I come and I say, babe, I'm struggling. I'm unable to... Happened yesterday. She buys a new outfit, and we're going out, and she goes, uh, So, babe, do I look good? Yeah, you do. Is that it? Afterwards, how about being proactive? How about going, Cheers, babe, you look amazing. Guys? But when I'm at my weakest, 
I put myself into a place. That is the crazy paradox and mystery of God's love. Is when I'm at my weakest, I'm actually in a place to be an instrument of God, to love Louise in a way that he's not proudful, but actually sets her up for victory for the rest of her life. And that's my wife, but that should be the same for everybody else. Not always wanting to take for myself because I'm in a place and I'm projecting what's not there and the lack that I have. So, John basically defines love as putting our lives down and dying for other people. In a society today, we don't see much of that, do we? Because it's all about me, myself, and I. And actually, I'm not called to serve you. You serve me because I'm more important than you. But God's called us into that place. And Jesus saw that in the same thing with Isaiah and Daniel, which I've gone through, that there was going to be this great suffering. And so throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is depicted as the suffering servant. Matthew does the same thing. Luke does the same thing. And Jesus in, in, in Matthew, for example, he has this moment where he stands on the mountaintop and he looks over Jerusalem and he says the following, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who, who were sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate. What was he saying? Well, in that day, what would happen is, is in, and, and we've seen in our context where, um, where there's close-knit communities and what happens is a fire starts to rage and it just takes over the whole thing and it's, it's devastating. What would happen in those days, if a fire started in a village, often it just devastated the whole village. And what a, a mother hen would do is she would gather her chicks and put them under her wing and basically take the heat of the flames. It would kill her. But after the fire had gone, the chicks would be able to crawl out. Jesus is saying it was a well-known understanding. Go read N.T. Wright and people like that who've done the, the studies on historical Jesus. This is what Jesus was about to do. He was about to step in with the fire of God, the wrath of God, which was coming to judge sin. And he would put us under his wings and he would die for us and we would be set free. But he says you were unwilling to listen. And what happens is, is that a little while later, is in AD 70, Jerusalem is destroyed. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But the Gospel of John reveals the suffering Jesus. And I want to run through quick 10 points of how this, and I want to show you. Because in Mark 8, it starts this process where Jesus reveals his plan. And it's the same thing as Matthew 16, where he's with his disciples and he says, well, who do you think I am? You know, who do the people think I am? No, you're Elijah, you're this, and then you're John the Baptist, and you, no, no, no. No, Peter says, no, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And uh, he describes it. And so the disciples come to a revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one spoken of in Daniel and Isaiah. And Jesus says the following. He says, he then begins to teach them about the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed because after three days he will rise again. And we all know what Peter did, didn't he? <laughs> that won't happen. I will come against you. You know, da-da-da. And what does, Peter, what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because God had already put together a plan and a purpose that Jesus would be the suffering servant who would die for Israel so that they would be set free and reconciled back to God so that Israel would then in turn bring the gospel of salvation to the ends of the earth that the nations would be saved. And here's Peter going, oh, hold on a second. No, you're not going to suffer, and I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. That's why Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. We're going to see throughout this morning that actually God takes us through moments of pain and suffering, 
not to hurt us, but to grow us and to put us into a place of achieving the destiny and the purposes that he established for us before the creation of this world. We don't like that, but that's the way it is. He actually reiterates it in two more areas or two more texts in chapter 9, verse 30 to 32, and in chapter 10, 32 to 45. He says, by the way, I'm going to die. No, 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 hold on a second. You're not going to, no, you're going to die. I'm going to die. I've understood this and I'm taking decisions and I'm purposely walking out this road because this is where my father is taking me. But it's for your good that I lay my life down for you. Secondly, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on a donkey. Why a donkey? Why a donkey? Yes, there was a humility aspect, which I would, but in my studies of this, I realized it wasn't just because it was a humility statement. Because if you were a king, you rode in on a horse after a battle. And if you charged in, it means that you were coming to take the city and your army was behind you. But if you rode in, like Napoleon did down the Champs-Élysées, through the Arc de Triomphe, the Arch of Triumph, hey, we've won the battle. We're just coming back to gloat. Hey, do the queen's wave. But Jesus rides on a donkey. A donkey was always understood and depicted peace. And Jesus says, I'm not coming to do this in a way that you understand it to be, to be this military power, but I am deliberately riding on this particular donkey. That you might look at me and go, well, you're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to be this king. You're supposed to ride on this, this horse with its regalia and with this big gown and with a crown on your head, but actually you're riding on a donkey. That doesn't make sense to me. And Jesus says, I come in peace because I will absorb all the forces of violence on my body to bring about peace for you instead of you receiving those forces of violence on you. And I'm going to reconcile you back to God. Then what he does is he curses the fig tree. They go out to Bethany for a moment, and they see Jesus sees a fig tree. He goes over to it, and it's got no fruit. And he curses it. Why? Because it was like Israel. They were given the mandate of the kingdom of God to preach the kingdom of God to the nations, and they didn't do it. And there was no fruit to it, so he curses it. The fourth thing he does in Mark chapter 11, verse 15, is he goes into the temple and he starts to turn over tables and smash it. And people think, and I've always thought, oh, it's a, we can be violent because Jesus was violent. But actually, he wasn't being violent for violence's sake. He was being violent from a point of view of prophetically declaring what had already been prophesied in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And what it had said was, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, was Isaiah. That was the purpose, guys. But actually, it's become a den of robbers, Jeremiah 7, 11. And he combines these two texts to show why he's prophetically walking out that what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring an end to all of this, which we saw in uh, the texts in Daniel and in Isaiah that he was going to do. And in verse 18 of, of Mark chapter 11, we see that Jesus, because of that, because remember, the temple was the place that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the other sees Really, they were the religious leaders of the day. This was important to them. And he goes in and he messes with them. This is what it says in verse 18. And the chief priests and teachers of the law, when they heard this, they began looking for ways to kill Jesus. Jesus knew that by doing what he was doing, he was now going to move towards his death very rapidly. Then what happens is, is in Mark chapter 11, 20, verse 20, they go back past the fig tree, and the disciples see this fig tree that's withered up and died. And they realize, oh my goodness, he's prophetically talking about the judgment of God coming on Israel. And like I said, I was coming back to this. 
In AD 66, Tardius starts the revolution that took over Jerusalem. And for three and a half years, there was this massive battle against Rome. But Rome ultimately succeeded and came and destroyed the whole of Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, guys, can you not see? One generation later, and it's, he, he, the, everything is destroyed. He says, the judgment of God is coming over Israel. And if you don't turn and follow my ways, and if you remember, all the Christians had left Jerusalem, or a lot of them had left Jerusalem by then, because Jesus had prophesied for them to do so, because people hadn't turned to Jesus. And then fifthly, what starts to happen is that he gets interrogated. And you start to see in Mark chapter 11 that they start to, all the, the Pharisees and the scribes, because of what he's done, they start to say, where do you get this authority? Who are you? Who died and made you king? Who, who allows you to come in and say the things you are? And Jesus starts to go through and methodically unpacks who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. Do you know what's happening? At the Passover, which is about to happen, they take the spotless lamb and they start to look at it and examine it and make sure there are no flaws in it. What's happening physically is happening spiritually as all the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees start to examine Jesus. Are there any flaws? And we all know that at the end of the day, when he comes to the courtroom with Pilate and with Herod, they say we can find no fault in him. Why do you think hell could not and uh, Satan and his demon, demons could not hold him? Because he had no sin. No fault. He was the perfect righteous lamb that was going to be given. And then publicly, we see in um, Mark chapter 12 and verse 1, he gives that uh, parable of the guy who's got a vineyard, and he sends his, um, uh, his servants, and they beat the servants up, and they kill the servants. Then he sends his son, and they do the same thing. They beat him up, and they kill him. And he starts to describe the fact that he is going to die for the sins of the world. Then Jesus goes to the Passover, and he totally reinterprets that in Mark 14. Now, Josephus says millions of people would travel through to Jerusalem just for the, the moment of the Passover feast. And Jesus reinterprets the Passover meal. He interprets his death. He interprets the new covenant for Israel in this moment. And we're going to partake just now. But he takes the bread, and he says, this is no longer the bread of affliction that you guys eat when you came out of Egypt, but actually this is my body that is going to be afflicted for you. So if you do this as many times as you can to remember that the affliction that the Israelites had in the moment of Egypt is now me, I'm going to step into that place and I'm going to in my body receive all of that affliction so you can walk in freedom for what I have for you. Then he takes the wine and he says, this is my blood. This is the blood of the lamb that when the Israelites walked out, the angel of death passed over them. That's why it was called the Passover. That's why they reenacted all of those moments. And he's saying, no longer do you need to do that because my blood is shed for you to bring you into a new covenant, to bring you into the, the land that I've called you into as the purpose and destiny that I've called you into. And it's just saying, I'm going to bring about what Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied, which I spoke about last week. There's going to be a new heart, a new spirit. I'm going to relate to you based on a spirit, no longer through a medium, no longer through a priest, but spirit to spirit. And then Jesus talks about his resurrection. And I said this last week, and I want us to understand this. Jesus did not have any guarantees that God would vindicate him and raise him from the dead as a human being. It was through his studies, through his psycho-emotional understandings of what God was doing about the plan, and he saw in his eye, and he saw in Daniel, and he was sure, I wonder if that's me. And then he thought, oh, that is me. And he started to walk into that. And now all of a sudden, as a human being, he realizes that by faith, 
He is walking this road. No guarantees. I don't know if the Father's going to vindicate me and raise me from the dead, but this is what he has said. That's a massive thing that Jesus did. We go, oh, he was God. He knew it. He knew oh, he was just going to do this and then rise in three days. No, by faith, he had declared it and he walked it out. What are we doing in the lives that God has called us to when we, when we hit difficult times? The last year has probably been the most difficult year of my life. And I look at what's going down and I look at what's happening and I start to go, okay, hold on a second. And I've had even close mates go to me, Gary, what are you doing? Give it up. There's no fruit in your ministry. Okay. So this and the people in front of me are no fruit. Yeah, but it's not enough to sustain you, so therefore I think you need to give it up. No, by faith God called me into this. By faith God has established. By faith I walk this road despite the fact that at times I go, God, this looks different to what I anticipated. You said this and you said that, but it's not what I thought. I'm starting to suffer. I'm starting to feel the pain. And then people come alongside and say, well, you, you're not around enough because you're working, so you're not pastoring us, so we're going. Oh, I thought you were part of what was going on. No, we don't have the faith you do. Okay. So God brings about people who come alongside you, people of faith who go, no, hold on a second. People like Richard, people like Paul. Gary, we believe in the vision God's given you. We're behind you. Let's go. Same sound of the heart. The heart beats the same. And as the heartbeat starts to resonate and it gets bigger and bigger and people come into that, I am not perfect. Louise is not perfect. But what starts to happen is that resonation starts to come and the promises of God speak louder than the obstacles that are in our place. And we say, God, you have said, therefore. And Jesus does the same thing. And he walks into the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't know about you, but there's these moments where, where you go, Father, I can't do this anymore. Father, I don't think I can take another step forward. Father, please take this cup from me. Father, get somebody else to lead. Father, I can't. But I go to my father, and he says, Gary, you can. Why? Because I've put it in you. Jesus goes, okay, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And so in this process, he takes you into this place where no matter what you're doing, you're taking strain. What starts to happen is the psalms start to come out of Jesus' mouth. And throughout the time in the Garden of Gethsemane, throughout the time you'll see on the cross, the psalms start to come. What happens in our lives when we start to be in, you know what the Garden of Gethsemane is? It's the oil press, the olive oil press. What happens when you squeeze toothpaste? Honey comes out, eh? Oh, yeah. No. And if you take a, a honey jar and you squeeze it, what comes out? Toothpaste. No, no. When we start to get squeezed, what's inside comes out. So what comes out in our moments when we're under stress? Where do we go to? What do we say? Because if we're flooking and we're running other people down and we're looking for projection onto other people and we're smashing everyone else around us, then maybe something's inside of us because we're feeling the pressure of life and we start to hurt the ones that are closest to us, the ones that God's actually put in our lives for our good. Jesus, in this moment, starts to allow the prayers and the psalms of David to come out of his mouth because it was inside of him. If we're not CBRing, if we're not reading the Word of God, if we're not meditating and memorizing the Word of God, guess what? When the moment comes, when the pressure comes on, what's going to come out? 
It's not going to be honey. It's going to be toothpaste, and it's going to burn. And we're going to burn those people around us as we stick it in their eyes. This was the ultimate battle of wills. We have this every single day of our lives. This battle of wills, the Father's will, my will. God, this should look differently. Why is this not working? Why is that not working? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And we can start to get into a place where we miss what God's actually doing because he's preparing us for the future that he has for us. And so as Jesus did, he then said, not my will, but your will be done, and walked into it despite the fact that he had no guarantees. There is no guarantee that God will bless this property and this church and Louise and I. There are no guarantees. I don't do it because I want to be blessed. That theology that's out there is come to Jesus and be blessed. No, no. What has God called us to? And despite the fact that I'm going through these things and you're going through these things and life's difficult and we've got ESCOM and we've got governments and we've got all this kind of corruption going on around us and we go, oh, let's just pull the ripcord and get out of here. Maybe God's calling you out the country, but maybe he isn't. Where has he called you? What are you listening? Do you have your ear against the chest of Jesus? No, Gary, stay. I've called you to this. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm birthed in you. This is what I'm fathering in you. No, no, let's pull the ripcord and go to Australia. Who would want to go to Australia? Sorry, Paul. Nine. Here comes the turning point in all of this. In Mark chapter 14, verse 61, again, the priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus has two words that result in his death. I am basically saying, I am God. And you will see the son of man. And he starts to talk about the son of man prophesied in in Daniel, and everyone knows exactly what he's saying in that particular context. And what do they do? They tear their clothes, and they say, okay, we've all witnessed this. This is blasphemy. It's worthy of death, and that's what leads to Jesus' death. What are you doing when you're confronted with truth? Do you shrink back? No, this is going to cost me too much. No, no, let me lie a little bit. Let me tell a white lie. Let, Let me kind of paint this picture rather than that picture. Or do we go, no, no, this is, this, is, this is what I did. This is who I am. I gave the example last week where things went pear-shaped at work. And everything in me wanted to throw this other oak under the bus. Because actually, he was the driver of the bus. And I asked him to drive the bus from there to there. And he drove it into a wall and then through the director's office. And when you put a return email to one of the directors and 6,500 emails hit his inbox you know that you're not the most favorite person in his life at that moment. So when the email comes, who is responsible for this? I am. Gary, you can't take responsibility. No, I, I can. Because I'm running this project. And the fact that that guy made a mess up is actually irrelevant right now. I'm taking responsibility to fix it. And that's not to say, oh, Gary, it was hard. Because I did. I wanted to take this oak and not just put him under the bus, but right over him a few times. And then you forgive him and you move on and you have a conversation and then this week something similar kind of happens. Now what's happened is, is this guy has shown for who he is and he, the directors have now seen this and they're going to address it with him. It wasn't my place to do that. But if I had just gone and thrown him under the bus right away, would that have actually done anything? The point is, are we when we come and we are confronted with the truth and some of it is, oh my word, this is going to result in my death? Or do we skirt the issue? And do we move into other things just to not move into that place where actually the peace of God needs to come? Because actually it talks about Isaiah 52 and 53 that 
Jesus, this tender shoot, rises up in order to what? To bring about the shalom of God, the peace of God through salvation. And if we don't learn to go through difficult times and have the word of God in our hearts, then what comes out of our mouths is actually we project onto others and we break relationships around us as opposed to walking together and dealing with what God has put in our, in our hands and we move together. And you know what? You, you can't take on what other ones, another person's responsibility is and their response to what's happened because in this moment, and in this moment of crucifixion, when we look at Jesus on the cross, which is my last point, he quotes Psalm 69, I'm thirsty. He quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He talks about that suffering servant in Isaiah and, and, and in Daniel, this broken, beaten human being who is marred beyond human recognition. That's why even Mel Gibson's the portrayal of that in The Passion of the Christ doesn't depict it properly. But we look at that and we go, oh my word, can a human being take so much? And you know what's interesting is that for the first three hours, Jesus takes on the wrath of humanity. And we look at the movies and we look at The Passion of the Christ and those, those crosses are pretty high. Like you come and the person, like Jesus' feet would have been here. But then how, how did those other guys come across and slap him and torment him? No, they've actually, in the archaeological finds, they found that the crosses weren't that high. That actually people could come past, and you can imagine people were, were angry. We had a residence association meeting out with the police last Thursday. You want to see angry? People are getting shot. Police not being able to do their duties because they're, they're undermanned, underutilized, under-resourced. Anger. Did somebody in your family get killed, and a policeman says, we're doing all we can, well, it's not enough. So you can imagine, here's Jesus in the context of everything, saying he's the son of God, but now he's about to die. You've got people who are angry. I thought you were the one, Jesus. His face would have been up here. Being able to slap him, pull his beard out. It didn't just happen beforehand. For three hours, he received the ridicule and torment of human beings. That even continues to this day. Ah, oh, Jesus Christ. He was abused. He was jeered. And in the end, he cries out, Psalm 22, Eli, Eli, lema bashach. How do you say it? Sabachthani. No, Afrikaans. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gives himself up into the hands of the Father. But then for the next three hours, it goes dark, and he puts himself into the wrath of God, the dealings of God, who pours out his wrath on Jesus the broken body which we are going to participate, that we no longer have to go through that because he's been through it for us. And there's these private dealings. And then what happens is he dies. And two old men in Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who has this tomb that he's built for himself for when he dies. I don't know about you, but and in every time I've, I've read over this text, I kind of think of what it would have been like. But these two elderly men who were secret believers, they come and they take Jesus' body down and they wash it. I think sometimes we can just gloss over that moment. Jesus' naked body that's crusted in blood, beaten, swollen, and, and they, they gently just clean his body. And, and they wrap it and they anoint it with perfume. When, when you go and you read how much perfume, it was the amount, I think it was like 30 kilograms of perfume which was only set aside for the burial of a king. 
And yes, often we go, oh, Jesus saved me from my sin, but we forget what our sin did to him. I don't know about you, but wiping down a dead body that's just been beaten to beyond recognition, wrapping that body up and anointing it, how do we treat the body of Christ? Do we treat it like the Romans? So easily, when somebody offends us, put a thorn on your head. Allow the church to bleed for the rest of the world to look at and go, why would we want to be part of that? Or, or do we treat the body of Christ with tenderness like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea did to take it down and to gently caress her when she's bleeding, when she's made a mistake, when she's at her weakest? Ladies and gents, we've got to, as the church, move into more of this where we become the church. Not just we are the church, we become her, that we take the body of Christ and we treat her tenderly, not harshly, that we deal with our offenses with one another, that she's not this marred bride that comes to meet Christ, but she's perfect and spotless. I don't know what's come on me. Just give me a sec. <laughs> you know, Joseph Ratzinger, Bob Benedict said, when you study the humanity of Christ, you can only conclude that he's God. Thank you. I've got a whole bunch more, and I'm, I'm going to just speak from my heart. You know, Hebrews says that Christ suffered for us to bring about an inheritance. That Christ was the one who brought us into a place where through his suffering, we actually move into a place where we actually participate in the glory that he has for us. It says in Hebrews that Jesus sympathizes with us because of the suffering that he goes through. He's not somebody who doesn't know, like it says in some of the other writings about the fact that he empathizes with us. And so in all of this, we understand that when we talk about the baptism of suffering, the baptism of suffering for us predominantly is not one where the wrath of God, well, it's not at all, the wrath of God has already been poured out, but it's one where we are baptized into the sufferings of Jesus. And you know what that is? The suffering is the suffering of relationships. And as the church, we don't do well at this at all. Because what starts to happen is, is we have a moment in our relationships which starts to get strained, and we don't allow ourselves. Now, here I, was, I wanted to say this, and I'm going to end with this, is that on this side, again, it's like I'm standing here, and I'm the one that has wronged somebody else. What is my responsibility? On this side, maybe I'm the one who has been wronged. What do I do with that? And I spoke last week about Matthew 18. That if Sherry has offended me, I'll go and I'll speak to her. But now, she's over here. And whether or not she believes she's hurt me, I've been hurt. <laughs> and people look off and go, well, how can you be hurt? Come on, grow up. No, no, that wounded me. So Matthew 18 says, no, then you take somebody else and go, hey, my friend, you've wounded this person, but you're just kind of dismissing it. 
ah, whatever. Then you bring along an elder, and the elder goes, come on, guys, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of a witness to this world, let's deal with this, and let's make sure we deal with this stuff. This is what's gone down. Let's deal with it. This person now has the responsibility to respond. This person over here has the responsibility to be gracious and forgiving. We often mix that up, don't we? So we sit here and we start to go, well, hold on a second. This person, I want retribution. I want that person to feel the same pain I did. And so when I speak to them, I'm going to tell them everything that they did to me. That's not the point. The point isn't to go and tell somebody how bad and ugly they are and what they've done, but to go and say, I've just been wounded by you. And I want to say that I forgive you. And sometimes you don't even need to go to that person. But if you're in the same community, you do. Because otherwise what will happen is your relationship will start to pull apart and everyone will go, what's going down? But we are called into relationship with each other because from community to community to be able to live this out. But actually part of and our biggest pain is a baptism of suffering into relationships. And as the church, we have been inept in dealing with these things. And even this thing of, that's what I was trying to refer to, let's just speak the truth in love. I know, Rich, you're this and you're that, and you're this and you're that, and, and, and you can't do this and you can't do that, and you, oh, sure, thank you. I must be Satan's cousin. What's the point in that? Well, you feel better, don't you? But I don't think you do. Because all you've done is you haven't dealt with the plank in your own eye, knowing that you've also done that to other people. And so what we do is we carry on life like this, and we go around in circles because I'm either the perpetrator or I'm the victim, and we just never move in any direction. Instead of going, I love you enough to say, hey, you've hurt me. And because you did this, this is what I felt. And I know you may not have meant it, but boy, it has really hurt me. Hey, you've abandoned me, my friend. Why? Because actually, X, Y, Z. Why did you do that? Well, actually, I don't even need to know why. All I'm saying is it wounded me. And for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the cross, I forgive you and that we don't break, we don't break relationship. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to totally undermine what I've just said. And half of this isn't even in my notes. Is we have relationships with some people that are actually covert narcissists. Again, remember the two opposite sides. So if I'm a covert narcissist, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come alongside you and I'm going to make you feel bad about everything that you don't do to make me feel happy. And the minute you start to do stuff that doesn't make me feel happy, I'm going to manipulate you and make you feel like you should be doing more. And whenever there's a conflict, you always feel like as the victim, you walk away going, oh my word, I'm such a bad person. I can't believe that I, I would actually treat somebody like that. If that is happening all the time, then possibly what you need to do is distance yourself from that person. You can address it, but if it keeps going on, you've got to go, you know what, my responsibility is that I'm never going to be reconciled to that person. But I'm going to speak up, and I'm going to say to this person, my friend, this is what you've done, this is how it's gone about, and I need to tell you this is what I feel. If that person is still making you feel bad, and you still feel like the victim, and it doesn't change, then you need to say, thank you. I love you, and for the sake of Christ, I don't think we need to cohabitate together in our lives because actually this is not a mutually beneficial relationship. 
See, what often happens in Christian circles and what I've just preached on, everyone's going to go, oh, that person, and I felt bad, and I've done this and whatever. I better go and make right. But now all you've done is you've thrown yourself back into the Daniel line pit, and you've put yourself into the pit of the covert narcissist, and they just start tearing pieces of flesh out of you again. So be careful. Love looks like something. Love is, I lay my life down for you. No, no, I'm just laying my life down for you, and I'm crawling on the floor here, and you're sitting on my back. Hear my heart. We've got to stop this in the church today. We've got to move into a place where there's a freedom to deal with this conflict right up front and not leave it for months on end, but actually go, my friend, I can't do this anymore with you because of this is how you make me feel. And if there's the selfless love, then what I do is I lay my life down for somebody. I give of myself, and they give of themselves. Why do you think John and Jesus became best friends? They didn't have to work hard at it because they gave of themselves to one another and didn't feel like every time they walked away thinking, geez, something just got ripped out of me. Am I making sense? I don't know why I broke down there. I really don't. But, but what I am feeling is that within the body of Christ, and this is not just like Louise said earlier, this isn't just about Lifehouse Church. This is about the church and the body of Christ that throughout the city I hear the same things over and over and over again. And what we do as brothers and sisters is we don't hold our brothers and sisters accountable for the way they treat the body of Christ. Can we be the Joseph of Arimathea? Can we be Nicodemus? Can we take the body of Christ and tenderly deal with her and anoint her that the fragrance that comes from her is not one of death but one of life? And you know where it starts? It starts in my heart. It starts in your heart. Now, I didn't even expect to go this route. I don't know why I'm going this route. And part of my journey has a woundedness and a brokenness to it. And so some of that's coming out. And whatever I'm saying, Holy Spirit, whatever is personal, I pray that you would just, people wouldn't remember. But the stuff that's of you this morning, Lord, may you be the after speaker. Because, Lord, we don't want to be the body of Christ that doesn't move forward in what you have destined and purpose for us. And, yes, relationships are always going to be tough. But, Lord, help us navigate this juxtaposed position of, Lord, loving each other, but also making sure that we put the right boundaries in place that people don't take advantage of us. And I want to break bread in a moment. Because Jesus' body was broken for us so that we did not need to take on what he took on for us and that our sins are forgiven and where we've messed up. And like it says in, in, in Matthew, where I've messed up, actually I leave my sacrifice at the altar and I go make right with my brother or my sister. I'm not asking you to go and do that this morning, although maybe God is leading you to do that this morning within this community. Maybe somebody's offended you. Just go and, you don't have to go and say, oh, gee, I forgive you. I mean, like somebody out of the blue, I forgive you. For what? We're not talking about that. We're talking about where there's been relationship and now there's breakdown. How do, we, how do we deal with that? And maybe there's no reconciliation. Can I ask this? I've asked it before. If you have conflict, please do not pick up your phone and start a WhatsApp group with the people involved. Seriously. 
You say amazing. Do you know how many times that has happened to us this year alone? If you have something to say, go say it to somebody's face. Go sit down with them. Not start a WhatsApp group, tell them how bad they are, and then close the WhatsApp group and leave. Seriously. like taking a hand grenade and throwing it over the wall into your neighbor because their trees come and come over. Oh, sorry. Oh, what is it? It's about us going and saying, hey, Karen, she's... I'm so sorry that the sharks beat the lions over the weekend. <laughs> and I know that offends you. <laughs> but come, let's watch the next game together. <laughs> it's true friendship, yeah. I'm adding some humor here because I know it's a bit intense. But it comes down to when we actually look back, and many, many married couples here will have the same experiences. Some of your biggest fights are over the most ridiculous things. Why? Because you haven't dealt with something over here. And like Jesus says, deal with the heart, otherwise it does land up in murder. I character assassinate people because I haven't dealt with some issue in my heart towards them. Why? Because we actually lack the courage and the maturity to come forward and say, Gary, Rich, Ian, can we have a conversation? Can we talk about this? Can we deal with this? What? For the sake of the kingdom. Because like I said, those cars outside here are why we're sitting here this morning. Not for our own self. Oh, we get some worship and we get some free cake and coffee. and We don't do that because we want to feed you on a Sunday morning. If you're coming here because you know you're getting a meal, what's that? <laughs> We do that so you can hang around and actually connect. Why? Because there's dining room Christianity where you, you spend time eating together and connecting. And you know what? Maybe you won't do that with me for a season because I can't. I'm stretched so much right now that I don't have the capacity to meet with all of you guys. But there's other leaders in the church that have the same heart as me. Why don't you meet up with them? Because I promise you, I flatulate too. I don't glow in the dark. No, I'm serious. You don't need a relationship with me to be part of this community. You don't need a relationship with Louise. And ladies, please stop asking Louise to start up a women's group. Why don't one of you start it up, the one with the vision on your heart? Did you see how crazy when we, we laugh at it, but that's what happens. Oh, I'm not saying in this church because there's no women's ministry and Louise doesn't like doing women's ministry. That's not true, but she doesn't like to do those kind of things. Why? Because her personality type is very different from those who want to get up and do their stuff. Do you know how hard it is for her to preach? And yet, what we do as a community is we put things on people, and then when it doesn't turn out, we start to project our own insecurities, and we break the relationship, and we break the body of Christ, and she's walking around like a wounded animal. Come on, guys. And I know for three weeks I've come at this because I believe it's important to come at it. Because when there is unity, God commands his blessing in his life. And if you've got stuff in your heart, deal with it. Whether you stick around in this community or whatever the case is, deal with it. Because otherwise, guess what? You take that with you into the next community. Hyper. Deal with it now. And deal with it in grace and in forgiveness and repentance so that we can all move forward. Because like I, I had this slide no greater love. You heard the cliche, 
It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for us. I wonder if the love for one another would just help us bear with each other a little more. And we'll take the plank out of our eye before we ask someone to take the speck out of theirs. And we'll deal with our stuff. And we'll deal with the conflict of relationship and the pain and suffering that comes with it. Why? For the glory of God. Just like Jesus did the same thing. He walked the road of suffering and endurance and pain so that we won't have to. You know what? If you don't deal with this, guess what? Your kids will follow suit. My kids are going, Gary, Dad, Dad, what, what, what's happening there? I don't want to tell them about the body of Christ and the madness of it. My boy, Jordan, okay, let's have a seat, my boy. This is what's gone down. But Dad, why? Let's be the body of Christ. Let's be the one that despite the suffering and the pain, and I know I've gone on way too long this morning, I apologize. But I believe, and this is my last preach, so I'm just trying to keep it going. In the series, that is. Let's close our eyes. Lord, you've called us all to be wounded healers. And Lord, in our brokenness and our woundedness, we come and submit that to you this morning. Lord, we want to be instruments in your hand, and so we acknowledge our weakness, our weakness in our flesh, Lord, in our minds, in our emotions, and our dealings with one another, especially in marriage. And Lord, we look at that table and we see a depiction of the blood that was shed and your broken body that you took upon you my sins, my brokenness, my woundedness. And Lord, you shed your blood so that my sins would not be held against me. So by faith this morning, Lord, we want to partake of the emblems that you said we need to do as many times as we can to remember you. And Lord, where we know there's brokenness in our own hearts towards someone or towards your body, towards your church, I ask you, Lord, right now that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would come and send your healing balm and be the oil that you are that would bring about healing. I pray for courage to deal with the issues at hand. And I pray for a release into all of what you called us into. God, we want to be the witness that you called us to. We want to be like what Israel was supposed to be, the witness extending the kingdom of God into our workplaces, Lord, into our homes, into this community and beyond. But we know we can't do that if we stay in our brokenness and don't deal with our stuff. And so we come this morning, Lord, to partake, and we say, God, won't you deal with us, that we would not be the same when we walk out. One last thing before we partake and go into worship. I've seen people go, I've got issues in my heart, and according to 1 Corinthians 11, I mustn't partake. That wasn't the point. If you recognize the issues in your heart, you come to God and say, God, I've got these issues in my heart, and I'm struggling to forgive this person, but I'm partaking knowing, God, that, I find that the power of forgiveness lies in the fact of what you've done for me. Sitting there and going, no, just passing the plate on, because you've got stuff in your heart, defeats the whole point. 
So please don't do that. Otherwise, none of us should be taking. Hey. So we're going to start to worship. And we won't stay too long because I've overstayed my welcome. But let's come and partake. Let's do business with God. And if there's somebody that you feel you need to do business with in this community, go do it. Maybe not now. Maybe this week. But do it soon. Because I know that the rivers of living water will start to flow again where they've been blocked up. Because if forgiveness doesn't flow, we live a life that is chained and we take poison and expect the other person to die. Come, let's eat and drink.